Somebody at AT AT&T is looking at those Wonder Woman numbers and they're like, God, we just lost so much money on this. (laughs) Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elcheson. My co-host, Adam Simon, is here with me. And welcome to our Thanksgiving special. First up, uh, we are going to be releasing the extended cut of our interview with David Rosenthal, uh, who was on last week to discuss the future of startups. We talked for probably about an hour, hour 15, and we had to squeeze that into a 30-minute episode. So there's a lot of extra great conversation. Uh, So check your feed for that. That'll be dropping on Wednesday or Thursday this week as a little uh, special holiday bonus episode for all of our Floor 9 listeners. And before we start this week's episode, I just wanted to take a moment to remind everyone uh, to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. As I've mentioned, it only takes about five minutes to do, uh, and it really does help grow our show uh, and get some recognition uh, within the Apple Podcast charts. So uh, if you have five minutes, uh, we'd greatly appreciate that. And as always, if you're listening on the Apple Podcast app currently, you can actually leave us a review while you listen. All you got to do is scroll down to uh, the bottom of the Floor 9 page on Apple Podcasts, uh, where it says Ratings and Reviews. Click Write a Review. Leave us a few sentences as to why you love the show, uh, and press Submit. It's as simple as that. Thank you for all the reviews ahead of time. We greatly appreciate it. So, Adam, uh, seeing that we're talking about news this week, it's Thanksgiving. Uh, any any quick plans? Are you doing anything over there fun? Make any pies? Uh, definitely we'll be making some pies, uh, for sure. Pecan, apple, what's the vibe? Uh, apple and pumpkin. Oh, I like it. I'm excited. But, you know, I'm also not going anywhere, so I'm probably... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not going to eat two full pies by myself on Thursday, so we'll see what, we'll see what happens. This is a problem uh, if you're baking in, in, in quarantine, is that yeah, you, there's, you only, <laughs> there's only only so far that there's so many uh, people who you can share baked goods with. Right. Well, that's fantastic. Um, you know, if you stream it on Twitch, I would watch and comment because uh, I would love to see how that... Literally, how the, the pie gets made. Um, but with that, let's just dive into the two news stories that we would like to discuss this week. The first being Wonder Woman 1984 will hit HBO Max and theaters on Christmas. Well, let's say hit theaters in quotation marks. Yeah. Uh, because <laughs> I just organically in my Twitter feed saw both uh, Gal Gadot's announcement of this as well as Patty Jenkins, who's the director. Uh, yeah. And both of them had the exact same uh, sort of statement that... We- in theaters was emphasized in different ways. I think just because the directive was emphasize it and (laughs) they, they each, you know, wrote it, typed it differently uh, when they were posting. So, um, but, but uh, yeah, it's, it is being released in theaters, except most theaters are not open in most places. Uh, So the vast majority of people who see wonder woman, 1984 this year will be watching it on HBO max where it is Mm -hmm. also premiering on Christmas day. (laughs) Um, so this is interesting in, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one, it's the first, you know, we've, we've, <laughs> we're, we're starting to exhaust all of the different options for how you release a major blockbuster movie, uh, yep. during COVID. Uh, we had Tenet hold strong and say, we're just doing a normal theatrical release. The timing was a little bit different, obviously, than it is right now in terms of what was open. More more theaters were open, but it still only made about three hundred and fifty million dollars globally, which is not great. Uh, it did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it is losing money at that at that rate. 
Um, then we had Mulan, which was released on Disney Plus, but it was uh, an additional uh, rental on top of your a thirty dollar rental on top of your Disney Plus subscription. Uh, we don't have hard numbers for Mulan, but I think the fact for everything that I've heard is it did pretty well. But the fact that the Disney's not doing that again with any future re- future announcements for upcoming movies like Pixar's Soul, which is also coming out on Christmas Day. They didn't do it for Hamilton. They didn't do it for Soul. Tells me that it it worked pretty well, but not as well as they, you know, it's not a a home run for sure. Um, Right. So this is now, I think, maybe one of the last, you know, Wonder Woman taking one of the last few uh, routes to market, which is we'll put it in theaters and HBO Max at the same time and see what happens. Um, Most theaters, uh, you know, again, will not be open. Uh, you know, HBO Max really could use the the marketing push. Um, so, uh, you know, it'll be good for HBO Max. Um, they uh, last I checked, I think they had about eight million active Max subscribers. You have to be very careful when they talk about their their numbers because they like to bundle all of the HBO subscribers into Max subscribers, but they're not. <laughs> um, there's <laughs> there's a lot of people still watching HBO Go, HBO Now, HBO on cable. This announcement for of Wonder Woman came along with or around the same time as an announcement that HBO Max will be finally making its way to Amazon devices, Amazon Fire TV and uh, Amazon Prime Video apps, which mm-hmm. is great. Roku is has not happened yet, but what I hear is that Roku will happen before Christmas. So they will have sorted out those distribution problems, um, which is good. But... Uh, there's still a lot of barriers. <laughs> right. Well, um, do, do we know what it's going to cost? Like, it's it not going to cost anything. It is going to be included with your HBO Max subscription. They're not doing what they did, what Disney did with Mulan. It is fifteen dollars a month for HBO Max, and that will include Wonder Woman for one month. Apparently, they're still going to do some amount of windowing where it will only be on HBO Max for a month. But uh, yeah, no additional fee. I wonder how they're going to measure success of that, right? Versus like the movie theater versus the like. Did HBO pay up front then, like a certain X amount to have rights to the? Well, this is this is one of the big questions for legal reasons and for uh, for uh, contractual reasons and uh, union reasons. <laughs> they there has to be some transfer of money. For from the streaming division to the studio division. In terms of measurement, to your point, they will look at at the spikes in max subscribers for that time period and attribute, you know, probably most of it to Wonder Woman, um, or certainly anything above whatever the baseline was in previous months to Wonder Woman. And that if you look at, like Disney did that for, um, if, you, if you look at what happened with Hamilton, when Disney released Hamilton on Disney Plus, you could track the spike uh, of signups for Disney Plus to, to ha- and you can attribute most of that to Hamilton, I think. Um, I think the larger question is, okay, it's one movie. You pay $15 to watch it on HBO Max. Now you've got Max for a month. What's going to keep you in Max uh, is a big question. Uh, I think that uh, there are um, – they, they need more more hits basically that are, that are Max-only hits um, that are not HBO broader HBO hits. There are some, some larger questions uh, that this – is raising in the grand scheme of Hollywood that I think relate specifically to Warner Media and HBO Max, but also to just sort of the larger changes that are happening in Hollywood. One of them is that, you know, our major, major motion picture studios, their entire business model is predicated on these big franchise tent poles, which are, are tend to be 
in general, less risky um, and making a ton of money and propping up the smaller films, allowing experimentation with riskier franchises, with launching new franchises. You know, Wonder Woman was not a sure thing. You have to remember a couple of years ago when it came out, DC had been having a run of flops and Wonder Woman was was uh, one of the, I think probably the earliest ones that, to turn that around. So, you know, this is the closest thing they have to a safe bet. Um, and this is going to do a lot to help HBO Max, which is the right thing to do for the larger company. But for the studio side of it, like they're not going to make that billion dollars or, or, or $2 billion globally that they would have if this had been a normal year. So how is that going to impact you know, their, their production of films in the future. And the same thing, you know, could be said of Disney with Mulan. Um, and, uh, you know, Tenet was another Warner Brothers uh, problem. But, you know, basically any of our major studios, like this is, that's how their business model works. So if you can no longer count on something like a Wonder Woman being a pretty sure bet or Mulan being a pretty sure one to two mil- $2 billion bet, like, can you still afford to make movies that cost as much as these movies do to make? Uh, and can you afford to take, even, even if you can do that, can you afford to take risks with other films as much? So are you saying that like, there's like potentially then like, we're going to start to see like a convergence or not, not even a convergence, but just like a, like a lack of diversity or taste. I mean, that had basically been happening already with blockbusters, right? Like, like we had already seen the major studios move to this model where it was lots of, you know, tentpole blockbusters that were pretty much surefire hits. They made a ton of money. Um, and then all of the smaller movies, usually they sold straight to streaming. Um, and that, that, that would work just fine. But the question is what happens to those smaller movies when there, there aren't those big blowout hits? Like there's just less money all all around, um, or does the money need to come in from a different sector? You know, is 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 this more about reevaluating the business model for these entertainment conglomerates as a whole, so that film films theatrical films used to be the thing, <laughs> the the engine of of all of these companies because they you could turn things out that could generate you know a billion dollars in profit. Um, if that engine isn't there anymore, what's the new engine? Uh, and, you know, I think it's interesting because uh, as when you look at, at films that are produced for streaming services, they tend to not be as high budget. And when they are, they tend to not – there's no way to make a billion dollars um, in a, a streaming subscription service, right? Like what what would – what would you have to, what would it, how many subscribers would it have to attract to be the equivalent of a billion dollars? It would be insane, right? It's just, it's not going to happen. But so, so, so you get smaller movies on streaming because the business model doesn't support that, that size budget, which is maybe okay. The interesting thing is in television, it's going the other way. Like TV budgets for streaming are bigger than they ever have been. Like WandaVision, which is a Disney Plus series that, is I think coming out in, in January. It's just missing the end of the year, but it is rumored to be the most expensive television show ever created at $25 million per episode. That is a lot of cash. For Disney Plus, it's pretty much the closest thing to a surefire hit. Um, and uh, I think it's interesting that films in streaming have not proven because they can't keep you over multiple months necessarily. It's just the basic structure of it. Um, they They don't, the the format doesn't lend itself to spending those kinds of that kind of money. 
so we had IP, this asset that used to drive a billions dollar, you know, billions of dollars of revenue for these companies. And if that distribution channel's essentially like evaporating, right? Movie theaters are closing down. People aren't going to them uh, because of what's going on with the virus. Does that mean then these movies change in what they mean for a studio? They change as like, you know, it's no longer a revenue driver, but like these movies are going to be what we're going to do to like, you know, drive like subscribers for um, our streaming service, right? It kind of becomes like that hook in. And then we're going to start putting more money into TV shows, like you said, because they're, you know, they're, they're serialized, they're, 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 they're episodic, and they can take up, you know, a month of time or two months of time. They drive engagement. Yeah. They drive engagement. And so it's like the whole, you know, role of a movie has shifted from a massive blockbuster revenue driver to we're just going to use you to drive subscriptions. And then the TV content is going to be what's going to keep people around. You know, you have to think back to that ecosystem graphic of Disney that I always love to use. (laughs) Um, At the center of that was the theatrical film business where there is not, uh, I mean, Disney has some successful franchises that don't have films at their center. Um, They're smaller things like I'm thinking of DuckTales as an example, which I know is the the reboot is doing and the reboot is doing quite well. Um, And a lot of the Mickey Mouse stuff, like at this point, it just doesn't have its core in film, right? It's core is in television. Um, But most of those, most of Disney's IP started in film and then monetized in and engaged across, across television, across video games, across theme parks, across all of that. If you take the film out of the center, <laughs> no one has yet proven that they can launch something that is as successful as, I don't, I'm just going to pull The Little Mermaid or something, uh, or Beauty and the Beast or, you know, any, basically any major Disney franchise, um, of the last hundred years or, or Marvel, for example, right? Marvel is a great, is, it's all started in the movies and now they're spinning off they they had the Netflix experiment. Now they're spinning off into into more serious television. We haven't seen somebody a franchise, an IP franchise as big as a Marvel franchise or a Little Mermaid, start in television and branch out into other 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 areas. That's not to say that it's not possible. Um, Netflix is certainly trying to do that with Stranger Things. Stranger Things is very successful for Netflix. It doesn't seem like a Marvel sized success. And that's not to say that they, they won't get there eventually with that or with something else, but we haven't seen it and no one can prove that it's going to work. <laughs> and and I think that that is interesting. So Adam, if, if we think about TV becoming this engagement driver and how it keeps people in these streaming services longer, how is that going to change how content is produced? Are we going to start to see shorter you know, episodes that have 20 series uh, or 20 episodes within them, maybe at 20 minutes, or are we going to see, you know, 45 minute episodes? Like how is this content going to be changing uh, to essentially drive the max engagement out there if we know maybe films for two hours aren't going to be the the way forward? We were already headed in this direction, but as with everything during COVID, it accelerates it. We're going to see things that are, are more, look more like a hybrid of film and TV that are high budget television, high budget episodic, released over a period of time. I would not be surprised if at some point we saw, you know, um, Marvel content, let's say, probably it, it seems the most likely, where it's something that maybe looks a little bit like a movie uh, or, or a short season of television, but you're getting it 
every year, but maybe it's only three hours a year instead of, you know, 10 hours a year, like a normal TV show. Um, but you're getting three hours a year or, or maybe you're getting three hours twice a year and that's, you know, they can ramp that, ramp it up that way. But I think that that dividing line between film and television and, and, and the length and how it's released is, you know, this is something we've been talking about for a long time, but I think this is going to continue to blur those lines. And I think in terms of like where the profit comes from, the big untapped market that that none of these studios are really monetizing and really integrating into that IP flywheel as much as they could be is gaming. Gaming is where is a place where you could still easily turn billion dollar profits on a single title. Uh, and I think that that's at some point somebody is going to stick their head up and realize that that is primed for uh, both a place to potentially launch new franchises as well as a, a place to monetize existing franchises at a higher rate. Yeah. Well, with that, Wonder Woman 1984 uh, hits HBO Max and theaters on Christmas. Uh, it was a small headline, but there are a lot of implications behind that for the larger uh, industry. So uh, we'll wrap it up there. But then, Adam, we have one more bit of news, uh, this time from Apple. Uh, and it says Apple will be reducing its App Store cut to 15% for most developers starting January 1st. So it seems like after much debate uh, around these, essentially the Apple tax, so where if you were a developer and had an app in the Apple store, they got a 30% cut of all transactions that happened uh, within your app. Um, and this seems to be the first sign that Apple is willing to negotiate with developers uh, and trying to appease the uh, I know the masses that are uh, out there. Yeah, there's a, a bunch of different ways that people are responding to this. Um, I, I think... I think that <laughs> I'd the, imagine so. <laughs> it affects developers who earn less than a million dollars in profit from Apple uh, via the App Store every year. That obviously includes all you know one, two, three person development shops uh, for the most part. Uh, if you're three people and you're making more than a million dollars in profit a year, good for you. Um, but but uh, I think and, and that is about ninety eight percent of the the apps on the store are developed uh, or that, that that sell on the store are, are developed by smaller shops like that, um, which is great because it it means that if you are an independent developer on Apple's platforms, you will be able to make that your full time job sooner uh, with fewer sales, um, which is I think a big takeaway that a lot of smaller developers have been very vocal about is that that this does make a meaningful difference to them and they do appreciate it and they actually. Uh, are you know they, for them it's a it's a total win. There's no downside to it. Um, I think that the the where there are some people taking a cynical eye towards this is that um, it does not affect obviously larger developers um, and those the larger developers are the ones who had really been putting pressure on Apple um, both directly as well as via like via their marketing channels as well as via regulators to change some of their their rules around the app store. This isn't going to affect Epic. It isn't going to affect Spotify. Um, it you know it it is not. There are still lingering issues in the app store, and I do think it's fair to say that Apple did this at least partially as a way to relieve regulatory pressure um, and to score a PR win um, because uh, it's not going to cost them that much money. It's, and it's going to, it, you know, you can't, 
really criticize them for for making for being nice to independent developers, right? I mean, you can, and people are, uh, but I think that that's you know, um, and I think that those things are true, and that's fine. Uh, I don't know, like anything that Apple does to the apples to the App Store is going to be about PR at the end of the day. I think the thing that some of those larger companies are upset about is it is a loophole that allows them to, you know, uh, look good in public, but uh, again, not solve all the problems that they're asking for Apple to solve. My question is. I don't know how regulators are going to look at this. Like, does this actually relieve the regulatory pressure on the App Store? I could see it going either way. And until we hear more from regulators, we won't really know. Um, Apple was kind of at the bottom of regulators' lists in terms of big tech companies and needing... Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like Facebook and Google are going to be there where they're going to spend the most of their time. And if Apple's and essentially self-regulating to an extent where it's fine or you know they don't have to deal with it um this might be enough right this might be enough to kind of get the heat off their back yeah and i think that that's really what's you know companies like spotify and epic are responding to is that (laughs) they don't want regulators to think that this solves all the problems that they were were raising um and it doesn't i mean there there are other issues to to be discussed for sure um but uh, it, you know, it, it does, it changes the market a little bit. Um, Google is almost certainly going to have to follow suit for, uh, for their apps, for their app store. Um, because again, you know, the, because of, of market pressures. I look at this and, and again, maybe it's ladders back to like a marketing strategy, but just the power of segmenting your audiences. There's a lot you can do uh, when you dig into the data to understand where revenue comes from, where like your eyeballs come from in media, like who who your buyers are, because this is a pretty clever solution, right? It's like yeah. everybody was upset about the Apple tax. It was 30%. They cut it in half for essentially 98% of developers. And it's just like, and they kind of put these limits in where it's just like, they're like, yeah, the, 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 the majority of the population now is like, we've essentially cut our tax in half because you're right. You're a small business. Like you need the more money and they're continuing to focus the larger, you know, cut on the bigger developers essentially that, that they think they can probably afford it. Um, so again, segmenting their audience, I think it's clever. I think it was a, cl- a very clever way to get around it. Yeah. I, I would not have, uh, have, have thought of this, uh, Honestly, it gives them a big a, a big PR win. It helps them with their developer relations for the developers who are uh, the most important for them to have. The big developers are going to have to be on their platform in order to stay that big. Honestly, um, so it helps them with the the you know the folks that they need. They need them to essentially update all of their applications to run on the new M1 chip for their brand new computer that they released. <laughs> right, so good timing to put this cut out there to say, hey, by the way, uh, we know that you haven't transferred your applications over to our, to our new, you know, M1 architecture, but we're going to cut your, you know, our, our, our fee in half as a way to like, you know what, celebrate Apple again. <laughs> Let's go develop for the new M1 ship and get all the things on there faster. Apple, Apple does uh, sort of ask a lot of developers, especially small developers, especially, you know, there, there are plenty of um, one person shops who maintain multiple apps uh, in the app store and that's how they make a living. And it's amazing and awesome that you can do that, but they do ask a lot. Um, it is a lot of, it is, they are much more demanding than other platforms in terms of the updates you need to do every year to sort of keep your app, um, you know, not only up to date and running, but like as a 
good citizen of the platform. Um, and you have to sort of be in constant development of those apps. So, and there had been, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of backlash against Apple over the past year from those developers, um, partially because they, they ask a lot and they, they didn't feel like they were giving enough. So I think that this, this helps with that at least. Well, I think on that note, that's going to, you know, wrap up our, our news coverage of the week, you know, a lot of conversation, uh, to be had on these two items. And that's kind of why we, we wanted to give it its own special episode as we head into the Thanksgiving break. As a reminder, we're going to be dropping the extended cut of our interview with David Rosenthal on the future of startups. So definitely check that out this week and enjoy the listen over the long holiday break. And if you have five minutes, again, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We uh, greatly appreciate it. So thank you all. Enjoy your long break and we'll talk to you all next week. Mm-hmm.